This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. It's very nice to see you again. Excited to be here. I think we have a great session planned for today. Um, I thought maybe before starting, I'd give you another sort of brief overview of where we stand, what we've reviewed so far to create a little framework around this, today's presentation. So just to review, we've talked about the concept of dementia and how we, the way we think about it, the way we operationalize dementia as a clinical state or, or more specifically a stage in a long illness that is preceded by different stages, right? So we've talked about even an asymptomatic stage of these group of neurodegenerative diseases that can affect the brain leading to dementia, um, after which people enter a sort of a prodromal stage, then a mild cognitive impairment stage, and then finally they enter a stage we recognize as dementia. So in other words, to receive a diagnosis of dementia, per se, is sort of an incomplete assessment because we have to think of what is the cause of that dementia. I think we made that clear, my colleagues and I, and we delved deeply into Alzheimer's disease, all the way from genetics to pathology of the brain, and then the clinical manifestations of that disease. Then my colleague, Salvo Spina, gave you an overview of different forms of neurodegenerative disease. And then we moved on to talk about, you know, the current state of science around the treatments, clinical trials, Um, and just the general management of these group of disorders by stage, how we think of them. And we learned that the clinical trials, uh, the failures of the clinical trials are shaping or reshaping the way we think about these diseases. Um, And that's kind of where we are right now. And I think that's a good segue to today's presentation because this knowledge of these diseases going through different stages opens up a huge area of research around what can we do, what can we all do, number one, to prevent them, or if we are, let's say, in one of the prodromal stages of one of these diseases or an asymptomatic stage, what could we potentially do that may or may not, as we'll learn, improve our cognitive health and maybe protect us from a more precipitous decline? And those are the ideas that guide the research around today's topic, um, brain health promotion strategies, and how do we separate evidence-based hope, you know, for, for promoting brain health versus what we call hopeless pseudomedicine, and, and that's where my colleague Joanna is going to help you navigate the world of dietary supplements and other related therapies, um, and uh, my colleague Caitlin is going to give you the overview of the uh, state of science around brain health promotion strategies. So I'm going to welcome uh, Caitlin to speak. Thank you all for having me, and thank you to Sergio and Kyle uh, for putting together this program. Um, So I'm going to kick off by talking a little bit about uh, some strategies that we can all be doing that I try to do as we get older to help promote brain health. And these are the the most data-supported at this point, so they're the most empirically based. Before, Dr. Helmuth talks to you a little bit about some other strategies that may not be quite as um, empirically based. So... So before I jump into strategies, uh, it sounds like you've had a really nice overview of dementia, um, but I'm going to sort of couch my talk a little bit more in cognitive aging. So let's define it. What is cognitive aging? Uh, And these are real data showing cognition here on the the y-axis and age across the x-axis. And we're going to focus just on the blue line for now. And it shows the development of cognition over age. So when you were really young in childhood, 
we uh, have rapid gains in cognition that kind of peak around age 30 or so and gradually but measurably decline with increasing age. Um, and if that green line there indicates sort of average performance, you can see that the typical cognitive ager you know, hovers around average, falls, you know, right around there. And where this differs is something, uh, as Sergio was mentioning, is in dementia. This is this red line that takes a much steeper trajectory and crosses this uh, dotted red line, which we would consider impairment. Um, And you can see the big difference in typical cognitive aging is the blue line never crosses the impairment line. Um, So, you know, this is our trajectories based on data. So how do we keep our brains looking more like the blue line and less like the red line? And that's really where my, my work has been focused. Um, and there are actually a whole host of uh, factors that influence our brain health as we get older. And some of them are modifiable and some of them are not. Uh, so some of the non-modifiable ones I just identified, age as we get older, this affects our brains and cognition, uh, sex as well. Our family history and our genetics, we can't really change those at this point. Head traumas. Uh, But what I'm going to hone in on are some of the modifiable factors that we have. Uh, And so I'm going to spend a little bit of time really talking about the relationship between the heart and the brain and our vasculature and things that affect our vasculature, um, as well as other lifestyle behaviors like physical and cognitive activities and social activities um, that we know impact our brain as we get older. Um, So, first off, you might be saying, well, you know, if I'm sort of set to be on this red trajectory, uh, well, what can I do? I'm I'm just going to be on this red trajectory. Uh, But we have some work, uh, actually, by our group, uh, by Christine Yaffe, showing that this may not actually be the case. Um, This is a really nice article that they published a couple years back, showing that actually up to about a third of dementia cases could be attributable to these modifiable risk factors. So you actually have a huge impact on your brain. Um, And she showed, uh, this is a really interesting just thought experiment, that if we reduce these risk factors just by 10% in the U.S., um, this would mean that we would prevent uh, 200,000 cases of Alzheimer's disease by 2050. Um, So just a little bit less smoking, a little bit less sedentary lifestyle um, can really have a massive downstream impact on the epidemiology of dementia. Um, All right, so what should we be doing? Uh, I'm going to start with vascular disease, and I think this is uh, one of the areas where you can get the biggest bang for your buck. There's a lot of data out there. We know these are incredibly important for your uh, brain, and they're fairly easy to approach. So why am I talking about the vasculature? You're here to hear about the brain. Um, Hopefully this nice little model up here uh, highlights why I'm talking about the vasculature. Oh, we have this nice mouse. Um, So this is a model, but it shows all of the uh, incredibly intricate uh, capillaries and arteries and veins that traverse through your brain. You can imagine if you block one of these, how that could impact all the connecting areas. Uh, And in fact, each of these factors that are, each of these diseases that are associated with bad vasculature, so high cholesterol, high blood pressure, diabetes, um, are associated with Uh, bad outcomes in the brain. Uh, They actually lead to these little white spots that seem to be kind of like um, a little bit of maybe um, oxygen loss in the brain or loss of uh, glucose metabolism. Uh, But this is what shows up in the brain, and that's not normal when you have these types of risk factors. It's not white matter. 
so these are, this is actually injury to the white matter. Great question. Um, so the, yeah, this tells us that there's something that sort of disconnected that white matter right there. Um, and you know, if you just pick one of the risk factors alone, obesity has been very strongly linked uh, with Alzheimer's disease and dementia. You know, over a three-time increase risk for Alzheimer's disease and dementia in late life. Um, so, you know, what might be going on here? Uh, so. We know, um, you mentioned white matter. Uh, so those white matter dots uh, actually reflect this white matter injury to the brain. And we know that uh, white matter injury is strongly negatively associated with cognition. So the more of those white matter dots that you have in your brain, the worse you perform on our cognitive tests. And this is even, this is in our cohort of healthy aging individuals. So they don't have any dementia or MCI, mild cognitive impairment. Um, but they do have a nice distribution of some white matter injury to their brain, and it seems to affect their cognition. So what might be going on here? What's sort of causing these white spots? And we're really interested in this in our healthy aging group. Um, and this is some work by Cutter Lindbergh. He's one of the postdocs in our team, and he uh, took a look at inflammation. So we know that inflammation increases as we get older. Inflammation in our blood vessels is really important to how the, the blood gets through our blood vessels and delivers all of the nutrients and oxygen to our brain. Um, and he measured this longitudinally, and this is, again, in our healthy cohort of typical aging adults, and found that um, our healthy agers who showed within-person increases in inflammation just in the body had more of these white matter spots on their brain. And in fact, um, not only did they have more white matter spots, but the more within-person inflammation they had over time, they actually exponentially lost gray matter tissue. So they're actually losing tissue in their brain with uh, more inflammation in their body. Uh, and another possible mechanism, and uh, this is work led by Adam Stefferoni, he's a, a neuropsychologist on our team as well, is using an MRI um, that measures blood flow to the brain or perfusion, so how much blood is getting into the brain. And he measured this again, and this is in our healthy aging cohort, measured across time. And he found that within person decreases in the blood flow to the brain, more of this white matter spots in the brain. And worse uh, cognitive performance, more slowing cognitively on our tests. Um, so it seems that inflammation and blood flow and all these factors that influence our vasculature in the brain are really important um, to maintaining a, a healthier brain as we get older. And this segues nicely um, into some of the other work that we've been leading on physical activity. Um, so we, we know physical activity is good for your body, uh, and I'm here to convince you that it's actually particularly good for your brain. Hopefully some of this evidence uh, argues for that. Uh, there's data suggesting any type of movement is better than being sedentary when it comes to the brain and physical activity. Um, the American College of Sports Medicine suggests about 150 minutes of moderate intensity um, activity per week or so, um, but those aren't the most refined guidelines. Pretty broad. Um, and here's some data to support it. There was, this is a recent study that came out showing that uh, this was actually in women who had uh, more fitness and mid-age. They were actually at an 88% reduced risk of getting dementia later in life, about 44 years later. Um, and even in those who did develop dementia, they appeared to get it five years later than their sedentary peers. So again, this idea that moving and getting um, active is really important for how our brains develop with age. 
Um, and again, work uh, led here by Christine Yaffe, uh, suggesting you know you don't have to be a uh, <laughs> marathon athlete. Even just walking a couple more blocks could potentially help. Uh, so she looked at just self-reported how how much people walked, uh, and she found that those who walked uh, the most blocks compared to those who walked the least, um, had the least declines in cognition over a six to eight year period. So walking about 10 more blocks a day was associated with a 13% reduced odds of having cognitive decline. And these were in sort of typical aging adults as well. Uh, I think there's a lot of personalized <laughs> information to take away from this. But these data I'm showing you, so this was a big epidemiological study, so there were uh, thousands of people in it, and if you just sort of chunk them up into those who were the most active and the least active, those who were the most active had the, le- the least cognitive decline, even just based on a small cognitive screener. Um, and so we're really interested in some of the mechanisms that might be driving this, and this could get to a more personalized way to approach these strategies, um, just like you were mentioning. So if you're at risk for certain factors, you know, how could we tailor uh, these types of lifestyle strategies to you? Um, so this is work uh, in collaboration with Sal Vieta, who's also here at UCSF, and he looks at mice. And so I'm just going to walk you through this experiment briefly. Um, So he took old mice, and he had them exercise on an exercise wheel. And he found that there were more new neurons that popped up in the mice that exercised. Pretty amazing. It's actually been shown previously. Um, And this is sort of in the memory circuit in the hippocampus. Uh, And so then he asked the question, you know, what is it about exercise? Uh, So he took old mice who were just hanging out, and he actually injected them with exercise blood from other mice who had exercised. And lo and behold, he recapitulated the effect. There was more new neurons that popped up in the hippocampus. So something in the blood of exercised people seems to be promoting these brain health factors. So then he took, you know, wondering what is it about the blood in exercise. He took old mice and he took young mice and he had them exercise a whole bunch and he pooled their blood together and he tried to figure out what are the factors that are driving this? What are the mechanisms so we can be more personalized? And he picked out one factor. For now, it's under review, so I'll leave it for you guys to find later. Uh, And just took this one factor, injected it into old mice who had been hanging out. And even just with this one factor, he was able to promote neurogenesis in the hippocampus, more new neurons uh, developing in the hippocampus. Pretty incredible, just one molecule. And so our group you know, always turns to the animal literature and tries to translate that into humans. Um, and so our study, uh, we actually have healthy older adults who wear a Fitbit and go about their everyday life. And so we gave Saul some of our blood from our uh, folks that walk a lot and our folks that don't walk so much as derived by Fitbit. And he measured this one blood factor, and he found that in our folks who walked more, according to Fitbit, actually had more of this blood factor that he was showing in the mice. Um, So pretty exciting work to figure out what are the molecules that are driving this, if you might be at risk for this type of molecule, if there might be a medicine to target this type of molecule. Uh, The dream is to have exercise in a bottle for you all, so (laughs) hopefully we'll have that soon. Um, And I'm just going to highlight a a couple more uh, works on physical activity. This is something that I'm really passionate about. Um, And this is work led by Karen Dorsman. And she looked at uh, physical activity, again, in our healthy brain aging cohort. Um, And she uh, looked at it over time. And on the y-axis here, she took a look at how uh, the brain was connected functionally. So how the brain was communicating within a network. And she found that 
in people, it wasn't necessarily how much they exercised, but in those that were increasing their levels of exercise showed more tight connectivity, communication, and this brain network called the executive subcortical um, that's important for uh, executive functioning and speeded processing. Um, so increasing your activity, even within a typical aging group, seemed to be having some um, functional effects on the brain. All right, and so now I'm going to shift gears and talk a little bit about cognitive stimulation, mental stimulation, things to keep your mind um, working that's not physically related. And first I'm just going to talk about the, the concept broadly, and I, I just like this study because I think it's kind of indisputable in some ways about proof of principle. Um, so this study showed, uh, took two twins from the Swedish twin study and took a look to see uh, one, the twin studies are the best, right? Because they're genetically identical. They're exactly the same. So the only thing that differs is the environment. And this study took two twins um, and, and measured in one twin, the one that had more um, uh, cognitively demanding work and found that the twin that had more cognitively demanding work throughout their life uh, was actually at a five times reduced odds of developing Alzheimer's disease. So having a more cognitively demanding load throughout the lifespan um, potentially you know, trumps the genetics and actually affects your risk for developing brain changes. And not only sort of this lifelong cognitive engagement, but there's a, a lot of data to show that even in late life, engaging in cognitively stimulating activities is actually quite important for the brain. Um, this is one other study I'll just highlight showing that Older adults who reported more uh, going to concerts, reading, writing, coming to events like the OSHA Lifelong, uh, the, <laughs> the mental, um, uh, tended to have uh, less cognitive decline with age. Um, so it was for, for each cognitive activity that they engaged in, they had a, about a 0.18 um, delayed onset of memory changes per year. Uh, and so some of the take-home messages, I think, broadly are that even engaging in cognitive activity in later life is going to be very important for uh, your cognition, even beyond maybe your education, maybe beyond your genetics. Uh, and so there's been a lot of work around brain training programs, so how do I promote cognitive activity? I think this is one of the best uh, studies to take a look at this, and I'll talk about the pros and cons of it a little bit. Um, but this is the active study. It basically had um, older adults who were typically aging and had them engage in some of these uh, computer-based brain training programs. Um, they had a memory one, a reasoning and a processing speed one. And they had them you know, do the training, and pretty much everyone got better after the training. Um, but kind of amazingly, then they, they gave some of the folks some booster sessions in between the years. Um, but then they brought them back 10 years later, and they found that those adults who had done the processing speed computer-based training were still better at processing speed 10 years later. So I think this is a nice proof of principle that you can train a skill, and that that skill might be actually quite durable over time. Um, you can still see effects. Uh, and I'm just going to highlight some other work that we have that, if I haven't already convinced you, that staying uh, physically and cognitively active are important. So this is uh, in our, we have a cohort of people who are at um, a genetic risk for frontal temporal dementia. Um, so these are folks who carry a gene that mean that they will get the disease. It's autosomal dominant. Um, so we took this cohort of people and we asked them, how much do you engage in physical activity? How much do you engage in these lifestyle cognitive activities? And we found, again, these are gene carriers, they're going to get the disease, that in those 
who had higher levels of reported physical activity and higher levels of reported cognitive activity at baseline had uh, less, sorry, the red line, less uh, functional impairment over time, over three years. Um, so they're modifying their risk even though they're at a genetic, um, a huge genetic risk to develop this disease. Uh, not only that, uh, you know, not only were they less uh, functionally impaired over time, um, but those who were developing atrophy, so loss of the gray matter in the frontal and temporal regions, uh, so those who had high activities showed less cognitive slowing and better memory, um, even despite their brain atrophy. So they're sort of performing better than we would expect for their brain. Um, so really, again, modifying their cognitive outcomes, even despite the biology that's going on underneath, uh, theoretically. Okay, so, so what should you be doing now that I've told you that these things are important for your brain, you can modify your risk d- despite your family history, despite your lifelong uh, exposures? Should I buy a, a brain training program? Um, and I'm just going to address this head on. I think that the brain training programs are a great way to show proof of principle that if you train a cognitive skill, that you can improve that cognitive skill. And it's a great research platform because it's very um, circumscribed and we can dose it out accordingly. Uh, there is no data right now to suggest that these brain training programs actually prevent Alzheimer's disease or prevent dementia. They're just not there yet. Uh, but I think if you enjoy a computerized, cognitively challenging games, they're absolutely fine to engage in. They're, they're safe. Uh, there's uh, been no side effects that have been reported. Uh, but I, I don't think the data are there that they're going to prevent dementia in anyone. But what other things can I be doing? I think the characteristics of the activities that you do are the most important. Um, based on the animal literature, I think the activity needs to be novel, new to you, and challenging to you. Um, so there's evidence to suggest that once you make a connection in your brain, that connection's pretty much there, even if you come back five, ten years later. Um, so developing more and new and complex connections in your brain, uh, I think, is sort of the, the, the key aspect, the active ingredient to cognitive activities. So really pushing yourself in new ways, learning new things like you are each week here, uh, are the things that I think will probably um, bear out to have the most benefit Um, But we don't know, to be fair. And so this can come in many forms. Obviously, to you, something that's novel and challenging might not be the same as your peer. So this could be in the format of uh, making new relationships, volunteering, um, playing computerized games, starting a new hobby. Um, Again, whatever to you is going to push you to drive uh, new connections and, and stretch you cognitively. And I'm just also going to touch base about stress. This is something that our group also thinks about, um, and age and inflammation. So I've already mentioned inflammation is probably not so great for our brain. Inflammation increases as we get older. Our immune systems just become a little bit more dysregulated. It's called uh, immunosenescence. And we also know that when people are stressed out, they also have inflammation. And so we ask the question, well... If our cohort is aging and some of them are stressed out, do they have a double hit on their inflammation? And then does their cognition suffer because of that? Um, And this is just a a pictorial showing uh, the brain down here. This is the blood up here. This pink part is the blood-brain barrier that keeps the blood outside of the brain. Um, And these are immune cells that are signaling across the brain 
um, to activate inflammation in the brain and hurt the neurons, essentially. And so, again, inflammation, we think, is really quite important for brain health, especially in typical aging. Uh, and so we found that, yes, a hypothesis confirmed. And our uh, participants who reported higher levels of perceived stress, uh, over time, those that were older showed disproportionate increases in inflammation than we would even expect for their age. So greater inflammation for their age than expected if they were stressed out. Versus those with low stress, you can see that the older adults had more inflammation in general, but they weren't on an upward trajectory. Uh, and we think that, again, that this inflammation is important. And within this study, we found that uh, increases in inflammation over time were associated with decreases in this uh, cognitive skill executive functioning. So we, we do think that the changes with the stress-related inflammation are probably not going to have a beneficial effect downstream for these people. So what can you all do? Uh, there are actually a lot of empirically-based, data-supported strategies to reduce stress. Um, some of them are super simple. You can do them while you're sitting here. <laughs> uh, and some of the, again, the most evidence-based, mindfulness-based stress reduction, there's a lot of great books um, that you can take a look at if this is something, a strategy that you'd like to try out to stretch your brain in a different way. Actually, exercise is uh, really quite good for our moods and for our stress levels. Um, simplifying your life is also, uh, can be a helpful approach. Um, so it's definitely things to think about. Can you say more of what you mean by simplifying? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, well, sometimes we see, uh, you know, people who come into our clinic and they're, you know, they're working and they're taking care of their grandkid and they're volunteering and they're, you know, they're doing X, Y, and Z and they're incredibly stressed out. Uh, and I think that taking a, a step back, thinking about what your priorities are and making life easier for you is not a bad thing uh, if, if you're feeling overwhelmed. Um, and then I'll just touch base briefly also about diet. Uh, we also are, I think there's uh, a good amount of evidence coming out, but this is a, a little bit understudied. I think we're learning a lot um, now, but we don't know a ton. But uh, the, the most evidence that's come out that's been most convincing to me is around the Mediterranean-style diet, as well as just whole fruits and vegetables. Um, so people who adhere to more of a Mediterranean-style diet and eat more leafy greens um, seem to have a reduced risk of cognitive decline with age, about 30% 30, 30 reduced risk, and also reduced risk of stroke. So thinking about the vasculature in the brain, um, again, this might be part of the mechanism of diet. Uh, so what is the Mediterranean diet? Uh, it's actually more of a style of diet, so it's meant to be eating you know, with others, um, in a social environment, uh, basically basing your meal off of your uh, whole grains and fruits and vegetables, and then adding your proteins on top of that. And the proteins being more primarily fish and seafood, um, some poultry and less red meats. Um, also a little bit of wine in moderation, about a glass or two um, is advocated for. There's some evidence to support and so we actually took a look at this again in our healthy brain aging folks. So these are cognitively healthy um, older adults. And we found uh, within our folks who adhered more to a Mediterranean-style diet just by reporting what they ate, we found uh, less amyloid plaques in their brain. So those are the, the plaques that accumulate uh, with Alzheimer's disease. We found that they, their mood was better, and they performed better on our memory testing. 
So our older adults who adhere to more of this Mediterranean-style diet seem to appear to have uh, less Alzheimer-like symptoms coming on. Uh, so what is the take-home here? I, I think some of it is common sense, but really uh, thinking about it in, con- in the context of the brain um, <laughs> Challenge your brain, support it with nutrients, uh, continue engaging cognitively and socially and physically. Uh, What's good for your heart is good for your brain. You can think about that with your diet, with your activities, uh, with everything you're doing in your day-to-day life. And we have a a bunch of studies that are enrolling, and we would love to have you all um, participate. We also uh, have an intervention study taking a look at different types of lifestyle behaviors and how these affect different molecular outcomes. Um, And with that... Uh, and I just want to take a moment to thank, you know, I showed a lot of work from a lot of different people that takes a, a whole village and a community to make this type of clinical work uh, work. And one of whom is Dr. Joel Kramer, who will be on our panel today. A uh, huge thank you to him for leading the healthy team, uh, healthy brain aging team, and everyone else who's participated, in, including our participants and families. <coughs> So with that, I'll leave my email up, but I want to have uh, Dr. Helmuth come on up and talk a little bit about maybe some of the strategies that would be less helpful for the brain, less empirically based. Thank you. A fantastic talk. Uh, I'm uh, Dr. Joanna Helmuth. I'm a neurologist at the Memory and Aging Center. Uh, and I'm going to talk a little bit about how to decode some of these direct-to-consumer products that you see out there for brain health. Again, these are products that kind of bypass the, uh, the doctor's office and are advertised directly to you to potentially improve your brain functioning. Uh, And I wanted to really uh, empower you with knowledge so that when you're out there in the world or you see advertisements, you feel like you understand at least as much as the company trying to sell these products to you uh, and that you know a little bit more about some of the laws around some of these issues. I think it's really hard to know what to trust out there. You know, when you've um, heard everything that Dr. Castelletto has said, you know, about interventions that do help a lot of lifestyle changes, um, when you go to the grocery, this is, you know, one day I was at the grocery store, I was waiting for my husband to get some stuff, and I just looked at the aisle of all the brain supplements, and there were a ton of them there, showing to, or claiming to improve brain health in some way. This one says, uh, clinically proven to improve memory and concentration, Maximum focus and memory, um, shown to help support memory and focus. Um, There's a lot of products out there that you can potentially buy that may or may not help your brain. Um, As Dr. Castelletto mentioned, uh, there's a company uh, that actually was marketing a young plasma for a mere $8,000. You could get transfused with the plasma of a young individual uh, to help your brain function. The FDA cracked down on that pretty quickly, so they're no longer available. Um, But, you know, in late 2017, there's this book that came out, The End of Alzheimer's Disease, um, that was claiming to be the first program to prevent and reverse cognitive decline. So when you see these messages out there, how do you decode what works and what doesn't? I think it's challenging because it requires a little bit of a scientific background. It requires you to kind of dig into the literature a little bit. But I wanted to give you a framework so you understand what these companies are working with when they're able to make these claims. And so to do that, 
I think we first need to know how the government regulates supplements. So the big categories I would say are supplements are mainly what my patients ask me about in clinic. That's probably 80% of what patients ask about. But they also ask about these other interventions and some of these protocols that are out there. And so we'll talk a little bit about those too. But I wanted to spend a majority of our time talking about supplements because I think that's where a lot of people spend their time and, frankly, their money too. So how does the government uh, regulate supplements? So this is really something that came about in the early 90s. There was this big movement uh, to regulate the supplement industry. Um, There were some attempts in the early 90s that didn't come to fruition. Um, I think Mel Gibson was a big part of some ad campaigns in the early 90s, basically saying uh, the government's trying to keep you from buying your own vitamin C and... um, the, a lot of lobbyists got involved, and, and ultimately, we got the Dietary Supplement Health and Education Act in 1994. This is a passed by Congress, and this really dictates how the Food and Drug Administration can regulate the safety and the efficacy of supplements that are on the market. So these are the, the laws that supplement manufacturers are working with um, when they're able to talk about safety and efficacy. And those are the big things that I come back to because if you are going to take a medication or do any intervention like the ones that Dr. Castelletto mentioned, I want to know that they're safe and I want to know that they're effective. I'd like them to not be too expensive too, but I don't want you to do it if it's unsafe and I don't want you to be wasting your time and your money on it if it's not effective. So the Dietary Supplement Health and Education Act. Let's start by talking about the safety of supplements. So this act of Congress from 1994 actually says that the FDA cannot test supplements for safety. A lot of people don't realize that. The FDA is not allowed to test supplements for safety. So actually, this is something done by the companies themselves. And they say, well, I'm putting these products in. Uh, These are the ingredients. And I think they're safe. And so uh, we should be allowed to put this on the market. Um, Supplements are actually considered safe under this law until proven otherwise. So they actually have to have proof that it's unsafe. And to be considered unsafe, it actually has to harm somebody. You can't just say there's lead in this. That lead has to harm somebody before it's considered a harmful um, uh, supplement. Um, The FDA also doesn't have a lot of power to stop supplement manufacturers if something's going wrong. So this law only gives the FDA permission to stop a company from making a supplement until the agency can prove that it poses a significant public health risk. So it doesn't matter that a few people get sick because of something in a supplement. It actually has to prove a significant public health risk before the FDA can kind of try to get it pulled from the market. Um, So I think a lot of people don't realize this. I think that a lot of people assume that supplements are regulated much like prescription drugs are. And actually, it's the exact opposite. We put the onus on the companies themselves that are making money off of selling them, and uh, as opposed to the federal government. And that's not to say that supplements aren't safe. It's just that we don't really have data that they are safe because it's really, again, in the hands of the companies. So what are some other uh, topics to talk about safety? So one is that I think a lot of these supplements market themselves as natural, and that's one of the arguments for why the, the companies themselves should be able to regulate this, is because they're natural products. But that doesn't mean that just because it's natural... It doesn't have something harmful in it. And I think that a lot of times some of these supplements are hiding behind that natural label. Um, 
Uh, I think a supplement is something that is not regulated by the Food and Drug Administration, that is considered a natural compound. Um, and we'll get into a little bit more about how they can market that. But I think that it's something that is not meant to um, augment or treat a disease process. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit more when we talk about efficacy and the language that they can use around efficacy. Um, we also know that some supplements can cause unwanted side effects or they can have un unwanted symptoms that you don't necessarily anticipate and that these, these may interact with other medications you're taking or other conditions you have. Again, I'm pregnant. I'm taking you know, my prenatal vitamins. I'm, I'm taking supplements daily. So I do have some trust that some of these supplements are safe. But we don't have evidence one way or the other. Is the reality. All it takes is really one unscrupulous company that doesn't want to uh, be forthright about what's in their ingredients, or they want to substitute something cheap um, as opposed to something high quality. And the reality is we just wouldn't know one way or the other because we don't have that evidence. So we talked a little bit about safety. Let's talk about efficacy. So I'm going to lay it down here that no dietary supplement has been shown to prevent cognitive decline or dementia. So not ginkgo biloba, not those fish oil caplets, not vitamin E, not those things that you may associate, and even I as a neurologist kind of have some sort of pop cultural association with uh, you know, brain health. None of those things have been proven to prevent cognitive decline or dementia. Eating a Mediterranean diet, you know, where you're actually eating the fish oil in the fish, has been shown to help, but not taking a pill. And so knowing that no dietary supplement yet has been shown to prevent cognitive decline or dementia, again, maybe some more data will come out in the future that changes our thinking about that, but presently we don't have any data on that. Knowing that that's the case, how do we really uh, digest what's on the label of some of those supplements that we were looking at earlier? And that really comes to how this Dietary Supplement Health and Education Act of 1994 um, how that allows supplement manufacturers to talk about the efficacy of supplements. So supplement manufacturers are allowed to make claims about the structure or function of the human body. So supplement manufacturers are allowed to make claims about the structure of the body, like calcium can improve bone strength. They're also allowed to make claims about the function of the human body. Things like this supplement can improve memory or concentration. Memory and concentration are just normal functions of the human brain, and supplement manufacturers can make statements about the function of the human brain. But what are the data behind that? The FDA does not see or review any data supporting these claims of structure and function. No data that the FDA or any federal body sees supporting these. These companies are supposed to have evidence supporting these claims. But the FDA is not even permitted to examine it. So it's a little bit like the fox guarding the hen house here. Again, these supplement manufacturers are making money off of selling these supplements. And they're allowed to make these statements about, you know, in brain health, it's mostly about function, about memory and concentration and things like that. So you, I think it's fair to ask, how well is the system working? Well, this self-regulation system is um, not working that well. So, it, surprisingly, 
So back in 2012, the Department of Health and Human Services said, hey, let's do a study. Let's really assess these structure and function claims. So they evaluated 127 supplements, and they really wanted to see what is the data behind them. And they were actually able to get these data from these different supplement manufacturers. And their conclusion was that overall substantiation for the sampled supplements were inconsistent with FDA guidance on competent and reliable scientific evidence. And that this raises the question about whether these structure function claims are truthful and not misleading. And I, I want to point out the word guidance. Again, this, uh, this law of Congress um, from 1994 doesn't even give them the power to enforce this. It's just FDA guidance that they need to have evidence. So you have another governmental body saying that the way that we regulate supplements is actually quite questionable. And we're, uh, it really allows these supplement manufacturers to make some statements that are misleading and potentially untruthful. So if that's legal, what actually crosses the line to be illegal? And what's an illegal statement that these supplement manufacturers can make about efficacy? So supplements are not allowed to have on the label any statement of prevention, treatment, or cure of a disease process. And this gets back to your question a little bit. So if you make a claim about preventing, treating, or curing a disease in a supplement, suddenly you're not a supplement anymore. Suddenly you're a prescription drug because you're treating a medical condition. So you can't say things like calcium can improve osteoporosis, right? You cannot say supplement, this supplement can improve your symptoms of Alzheimer's disease because these are medical conditions that are being treated. But that's a little bit of a fine line, right? This supplement here that I saw at the grocery store, it's not any better or worse than any other ones out there, but it says it's clinically proven to improve memory and concentration. Legal, perfectly legal, right? But if it said it clinically proven to improve Alzheimer's disease, that would be an illegal claim. I would say that most people don't interpret a difference between those two kinds of statements, right? If you're worried about your memory or your parents' memory or your friend's memory, and you want to get something to help them, you say, oh, look, it's clinically proven to improve memory. My family member or loved one or myself has problems with my memory, so I'm going to order this. So because of the way the laws are structured, there are very ambiguous statements that are legally provided that are just adjacent to totally illegal statements. And I think most people don't realize that. Because when you're looking at this on the shelf, it looks pretty convincing. So how would you interpret this label now? So I want to walk through it a little bit. So next time you're at the grocery store and you look at one of these labels, you have a little bit more in your armamentarium to kind of help you digest these things. So the first thing that I see is it's uh, natural. It's got a leaf there. It kind of looks natural-ish, right? Uh, maybe it's natural. Maybe it's not. I don't really know what's in it. Um, there is a list of supplements on the back, but does it actually include the supplements in the back? I don't know. And neither does the federal government. Uh, for a sharper mind, again, that is a functional claim. You know, a sharp mind is something, it's a function of the, of the human body. So that's something they're legally allowed to say. Extra strength. Who knows what normal strength is? Uh, I can tell you the extra strength costs $12 more a month than the normal strength did. And if you're worried about your memory, you're probably going to pay for the extra strength, right? Because it's just a little bit more. We already talked about clinically proven to improve memory and concentration. Again, that's a function claim, legally allowed. They don't have to have any data behind it that anyone has ever seen. And the Department of Health and Human Services thinks that if there is data behind it, it's probably not that great. 
Um, it enhances uh, mental agility. Again, a functional claim, legally allowed. Don't have to have data behind it. Stimulant-free. I hope it doesn't have stimulants in it, but I don't really know. Um, there were um, some problems a number of years ago with FenFen, a dietary supplement that did have stimulants in it that was very harmful to individuals. Results in four weeks? I mean, heck, I don't know where that claim's coming from. Um, and then how much does this cost? This one was almost $50 a month. This was not even the most expensive one on the shelf that day. Um, so it's, uh, you're supposed to take two tablets a day, so it's about $50 a month. Um, there was one I saw on that shelf that was $80 a month, and I only went into one store. So um, there's a very high cost to these. Um, I can't imagine that there's anything in here that costs that much. Um, just ingredient-wise, again, I don't know. But um, I think somebody is probably making some money off of this. <laughs> so you can see where I'm coming from as a neurologist. When I see this out there, when my patients are seeing these things and coming to me, I get sent advertisements at least once a week by patients saying, hey, what do you think about this? Well, um, this was disturbing to me and to the other doctors at the Memory and Aging Center. Um, so I wrote a paper with Dr. Bruce Miller and Dr. Gil Rabinovich earlier this year that was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, JAM, that's kind of a big journal. And we really labeled this as pseudomedicine. This is, we wanted to say predatory pseudomedicine, JAM wouldn't let us say that. Um, but we said that, you know, there's this rise in pseudomedicine in the field of dementia and brain health, and we really um, define pseudomedicine as supplements and other medical interventions that exist within the law, again, perfectly legal, and are promoted as being backed by scientific data, but really lack that efficacy data. Again, we don't have any of that efficacy data behind those supplements that we're seeing. So this came out in January, and about two weeks later, the Food and Drug Administration put out this big warning about unproven treatments for Alzheimer's disease and supplements. Can't say it's because of our paper, but I can say that the editor of JAMA did email me and said, looks like the FDA commissioner reads JAMA. <laughs> Again, it's correlation. I can't say it's causation. Um, it was covered by the New York Times and a lot of other big media sources that, you know, that the FDA is cracking down on supplement manufacturers that are making these claims about Alzheimer's disease. Um, there was this big uh, advisory letter that was kind of sent or that was put out for consumers. So I wanted to break this down a little bit in case that you saw this. So it was in the FDA action. So they sent out warning letters to 17 companies uh, that manufactured these products um, that were supposedly uh, there to kind of prevent or um, help with Alzheimer's disease. Uh, there was a very strong consumer warning that I, I thought was fairly strong. Um, you know, they said phrases like, this flies in the face of true science. They said things like, this, these are being offered by scam artists. The FDA said these products are a waste of money. So this is very strong language. I think even more strong language than we felt comfortable putting in that JAMA article. But what did it not include? So these were all towards supplements that were making specific claims about preventing, treating, or curing Alzheimer's disease. So all these companies just got a little bit lazy, or maybe their marketing teams weren't that great. And they really talked about preventing, treating, or curing Alzheimer's disease on their labels. Um, 
All this other stuff, still perfectly legal. They didn't make any, the FDA didn't make any statements about these kinds of supplements because these all exist within the law. They make those structure and function arguments that are perfectly legal. So you can see kind of the landscape we're in. It's very challenging. I think that it's, many people are, I would say, deceived by this practice. And so I wanted to empower you so you can also empower your friends and your family so you understand how to interpret this a little bit more. So in the last few minutes I have left, I wanted to talk a little bit, and this is just showing some of these supplements and some of the bold claims they make. Um, I want to just talk a little bit about kind of some of these limitations of the FDA. So again, the FDA's limited ability to enforce um, the Dietary Supplement Health and Education Act, the weak act that it is. So I actually figured out how many folks they have at the FDA looking into supplements, and we have more neurologists at the Memory and Aging Center than they have people at the FDA that actually crack down on these supplement manufacturers. Um, they have a budget of about $5 million a year, um, which isn't a lot to go after this. So um, they have very limited resources because the supplement industry has grown tremendously since 1994, and their budget has not increased proportionally um, to the threat that's out there for consumers. And again, because of the way the laws are structured, this really doesn't impact the supplements that I, as a neurologist, am asked about most and the, and the supplements that you see most on a day-to-day -day basis or the advertisements that you see. So in the last few minutes, I wanted to talk about the Bredesen Protocol. I don't know if any of you have heard about this or seen this. Yeah, yeah so people have heard about it. I'm asked about it frequently in clinic, as I'm sure the others have. So again, um, Dr. Dale Bredesen is a neurologist, uh, not currently a practicing neurologist, but a neurologist um, with a fairly commendable uh, academic career. Used to be here at UCSF, was at UCLA for a while now privately doing his thing. And he published this book um, in late 2017 called The End of Alzheimer's Disease. Again, the first program to prevent and reverse cognitive decline. Pretty bold, pretty hard to ignore, and pretty compelling if you're worried about your thinking and memory or you have a loved one with Alzheimer's disease. So we are asked about this often. So what is this protocol? It's a little bit hard to know because the protocol itself is not published anywhere and it changes over time. But effectively, it's a mix of lifestyle changes, supplements, and other things that um, he believes may influence brain health. So some of this are things that Dr. Casaletto mentioned, um, things like diet, um, things like reducing stress, getting good sleep, getting exercise, having brain stimulation. Um, there's some medical things that we look for. So whenever I, as a neurologist, evaluate a patient with cognitive issues, I want to make sure their thyroid levels are normal. I want to make sure their vitamin B12 levels are normal. But it also gets into uh, quite a number of supplements, and we already kind of talked about the, the efficacy of supplements. So there's a number of supplements that individuals are required to take. Um, there is a revised protocol that now um, screens people for... Um, uh, infectious processes that may be contributing to their dementia or their cognitive issues, things like chronic Lyme disease that are very um, debated, I should say, um, in the field of neurology. And so it's kind of this large panel of options that patients are screened for, and then it's really kind of a choose-your-own-adventure. 
about what you want in the protocol. I can say I've had patients who've been on the Bredesen protocol. And uh, you're basically allowed to pick and choose what you want. I had a patient who um, this protocol cost thousands and thousands of dollars to implement. Um, and he did everything except exercise because he's like, I didn't want to. Um, and as we know from Dr. Casaletto, that's one of the few things with actually quite prominent data behind it. So um, what is his book based on? Um, so his book is actually based on uh, two scientific papers that were published prior to the, the book coming out in 2017. And he subsequently had a paper that came out at the end of 2018. Um, and I wanted to digest these a little bit because people often come to me and they say, there is scientific data behind this book, and that's why I'm doing it. That's why I'm following it. So I read all those papers, and I looked them up in detail, and I went through them with a fine-tooth comb, and I just want to share with you what I found. So all of these three studies, the 2014, the 2016, and the 2018 studies, these are all case series. And I don't know if you know kind of the types of scientific studies, but a case series is a description of what you see. So the way I, I like to, to describe a case series, it's like saying, I'm interested in blue birds. So um, I'm going to go out in my backyard, and I'm going to describe all the blue birds that I see. And maybe I see a big one and a little one. Maybe I see eight of them. And you write that up. That's your case series. Does not mean that in your backyard you don't also have a raccoon, a possum, five blackbirds, some hummingbirds, and a bunch of other things going on. So it's a um, restricted description of what you see. And it's not an analytic study. It is not a hypothesis testing sort of study. There is no control group. So it's not like you're testing people who get the protocol versus people who don't. He just said, this is what happens when you give people the protocol. And again, as we talked about before, you can get anything within the protocol. And it could be a few things or all the things. We don't know. So no one has ever tested the hypothesis. Does the Bredesen protocol prevent or reverse cognitive decline? That hypothesis has never been tested, and that analytic study has never been done, because all these studies are case series that are just descriptive. All these papers also have no methods section. So when I write a scientific paper and I try to get it published, I have to write a detailed method section describing exactly what I did so that other people can replicate this. There's no method section. So I don't know much about the participants that were included. I don't know what led him to include or exclude particular individuals. And typically, we like to keep that very rigid. I want to know exactly who was included and who was excluded. I don't want people in that study who have thyroid disorders, who all I have to do is replete their thyroid, and then their cognitive issues are fixed. That's a very different picture than somebody who is in the early stages of Alzheimer's disease. Also, again, the interventions are poorly characterized. I don't know who was on what parts of the protocol for how long doesn't say anything about that. It just says these people were on the protocol. Um, and again, because there's no method section, we, nobody can replicate this work. Uh, I would say one of the more concerning parts of this is that these two journals that the, the publications were in, both Aging and this Journal of Alzheimer's Disease and Parkinsonism, are journals considered to be predatory open access journals. I don't know if you know about this, but an open access journal is a journal where the scientist pays a small fee for the paper to get published. And the reality is 
open access journals in themselves aren't problematic. There are many very high quality open access journals out there. The argument is if the, if the author pays a small fee, then that then becomes available to everybody. So you do not have to have a subscription to the journal because a lot of these journals are very costly. And in some ways, it's, it's very democratic to have these open access journals. The problem comes in when these journals become predatory, when these become money-making ventures for companies, where they create a journal, like the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease and Parkinsonism. I'm going to just tell you as a neurologist, those aren't two natural concepts you put together, Alzheimer's disease and Parkinsonism. They create a journal that sounds sciencey. They charge over $3,000 for your papers to get published. And there's very low editorial oversight, meaning there's not a lot of rigor in um, how these papers are evaluated. Um, often the papers are accepted within a few days, and typically months. It's kind of how long it takes papers to get accepted when they're in legitimate scientific journals, because we have to go through this intensive review process. We have to kind of revise things, send them back. Other people have to approve them before we even know it's accepted. And typically, I think that the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease and Parkinsonism accepts papers within three or four days. I can tell you that the publisher of this journal um, last month was fined $50 million by the Federal Trade Commission for um, basically their predatory publishing. Um, And so it was considered... Um, one of kind of the landmarks in, in some of these unethical practices that are happening in science. And so my question is, why don't we do better science? If this is a great protocol, fantastic. But let's publish great studies in great journals. Let's not publish poor quality studies in journals that you're paying to get your papers in, um, where there's questions about um, the quality of the work. Um, We don't have a lot of time, and I want to save time for questions, so I will just say that there's some questions about financial conflicts of interest. Um, Dr. Bredesen was selling this book as of late uh, 2017, um, and in his 2018, there was no statement about conflicts of interest and the money that he is making um, from this book. And then also, he is the... um, chief scientific officer, I believe, of this company based in Burlingame that for a mere $1,400 um, will do all the blood tests that you need to and connect you with a provider um, that does this protocol. Um, I don't think that Dr. Bredesen is uh, necessarily malicious. I think that from my understanding, he seems to really believe that this works. We know that there are a lot of components of it that really follow what Dr. Castelletto said is evidence-based. But putting it all together charging a lot of money, really uh, costing thousands upon thousands of dollars for patients to implement is something that uh, makes me have questions and more questions rather than answers, particularly when a lot of the things that Dr. Castelletto mentioned are pretty free to do. So what can you do? So stepping back, we can understand that supplements may or may not be harmful for you. They may or may not be safe. We don't know. We just don't have evidence one way or the other. But we know that there's no dietary supplement at present time that we know prevents cognitive decline or dementia. Uh, we know that uh, it, you know these supplement manufacturers can make very broad claims legally as long as they're not talking about preventing, treating, or curing a disease process. I want you to really take this information and empower yourselves and your friends and your family because it's really just our voices against the marketing campaigns of these supplement manufacturers and other places. People are really trying to make money off of fear. 
right? Because we have treatments for cancer. We don't really have effective treatments that alter the course of Alzheimer's disease. Um, and I am fearful of getting it myself, and I can imagine that many other people are. And I think that um, it's not unlike other conditions where people have a fear and they're willing to pay anything for a label that says it's going to help them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then consider focusing your resources, perhaps, on interventions that are evidence-based, the ones that Dr. Castelletto mentioned. So you could spend that $46.99 a month on a supplement for your brain, or you could spend that money to take an exercise class that allows you to socialize with other people. Think about it as a resource allocation issue. If you have a limited amount of resources to promote to your brain health or to use for your brain health, how do you want to use those? And what's the most effective way based on the data that we have? So if you want to learn more, um, there was a New York Times article about some of these things that we talked about that came out right after our article. I did an interview on KQED Forum. If you want to hear more in detail about these things that we talked about today, there's a few other um, kind of popular media sources. But I think the reality is you got probably more in-depth data today that's in, um, compared to uh, a lot of those more surface articles that are out there. Um, but I really want to thank you for your attention and your time. It, this is really kind of the work of everyone at the Memory and Aging Center. I wrote this paper with uh, you know, other, two other doctors at the Memory and Aging Center, but this was something that we were all thinking and feeling, and I just had, happened to be the one who had the time to write the paper. So um, I think that we're all really dedicated to evidence-based approaches to um, preserving our brains as we get older. And I think it's important to think about what's the data behind what's out there and um, really trying to follow what's evidence-based as opposed to what we want to be true. Thank you so much. So with that fantastic uh, two lectures in one, uh, let me introduce uh, our guest today. Uh, maybe you can introduce yourselves to the audience. Do you have a, a mic with you? Yeah. Hi. Hi, everyone. I'm Winston Shong. I'm a neurologist at the Memory and Aging Center, like Dr. Halmuth. Uh, I think I'm invited here because I have a particular interest in ethical and policy issues related yeah. to uh, dementia and aging. Yeah, maybe you, right. can, maybe you can. Uh, yeah, so just share your any thoughts that, uh, you know, as someone that is inter- interested in ethics and, and this path that you've carved for yourself as an academician, which is neuroethics, mm-hmm. when you hear uh, uh, Joanna's presentation, what are some thoughts that come to mind and yeah. that you think are relevant? So, um, in some ways, Joanna's made the job a little too easy for me. I, I usually deal with ethical dilemmas, and I think Joanna's presented a very strong case for, for questioning. Uh, some of these companies, I did want to talk about some of the things that are arguments or emotional appeals on the other side. And I think a lot about a patient I saw when I was just out of medical school. So this must have been 2006 or 2007. And this was a young man who had a spinal cord injury and he was paralyzed. And I was working with uh, this young man uh, you know, when he was in rehabilitation, and his family let me know that when he was going to be discharged from the acute rehab facility, they were going to take him to Mexico for stem cell therapies that were going to cost thousands of dollars. And I had a feeling that this was not the right choice for him, but there were two things that uh, this young man's uh, parents, uh, who were telling me about it, said. And they didn't say that they thought it was necessarily going to work. But the two things they said was, first, you know, they, they wanted to do something where they had hope that he was going to get better. And so spending that money to them was worth it 
for hope. And the second thing they said was also that, you know, it, it can't hurt, right? So these were two very strong arguments that I, I didn't really know how to respond at the time. And again, I had the feeling that they were doing the wrong thing and this wasn't the right choice, but I didn't know how to respond to these two arguments about hope and about not causing harm. So um, I can tell you right away also that, that uh, I can tell you now in 2019 that this definitely didn't work. It's 2019, and we actually, there's still no evidence that, spinal, uh, that stem cell treatment uh, helps people with spinal cord injuries. So I can assure you that whatever treatment he received in Mexico in 2006 or 2007, whether it contains stem cells or not, um, definitely did not treat his spinal cord injury. I, I didn't follow him. I, I don't know what happened to him, but I'm quite confident in saying that. So the first thing I want to say is about hope, because hope is a very important value to all of us. And I think, though, that when we're talking about hope in the absence of science, in the absence of knowledge, and we're just talking about belief, that um, I, I find it to be a really troubling kind of argument. And one thing I would say is that there's a lot of things that we used to do before that we used to justify that we no longer think are justified. And sometimes we did that for hope. So there was a time, for instance, in this country, and it's still true in many places, that uh, we didn't tell people that they had a diagnosis of cancer, right? And the reason why we didn't tell people these things is because we wanted to maintain their hope, or at least that's what we said. And I, I think that that might have been a very genuine motivation. But one thing that's also worth saying is that, um, I hate to put this in a skeptical way, but that was a, an ethos that made life a lot easier for the doctor. And the doctor could say, I don't want to tell this patient that they have an incurable disease because I want them to still have hope. But, you know, that's also something that gets the patient out the door, you know, is no longer the doctor's problem, instead of having a really difficult and really painful conversation. And so sometimes I worry that we say we're doing something for the sake of the patient maintaining their hope, when really maybe that's easier for us or maybe that's easier for a family member because, you know, in medicine, there are things that are really hard. You know, we, we talked about Alzheimer's disease and we talk about the, the fear that people have of Alzheimer's disease and we shouldn't discount, you know, how, how bad it is for many people. And so to have a conversation, and I'm a neurologist, I am sick of having the conversation with patients about what, what can I do about my Alzheimer's disease and to say, you know, we, we still don't have great treatments. And it would be a lot easier for me to tell someone to go down the street and buy <laughs> a, a bottle, uh, $90 a, a month uh, of, of some supplement instead of having the conversation with somebody about, you know, what does this mean? Like, how can we make your life meaningful going forward? What are the things that are important for you to do if you might not have as long as you want it in your retirement? And what are the things that you need to plan for for you and your family? So I, I don't want to say, you know, that, that hope is a bad thing or that hope isn't important, but I think that we have to be really, really careful about our own motivations when we talk about preserving hope. Because I think um, we've seen in the past in many other situations that 
um, sometimes we do something that is convenient or expedient for ourselves in the name of preserving hope when it's really more that it would be more difficult to have a conversation where we're really confronted with things that we can't always fix. So that's Excellent. one thought. Um, the second thought, and I think uh, Dr. Helmuth has already said a lot about this, is the question of, you know, if I'm willing to spend this money and it's not going to hurt. And I, I guess, you know, I think if we zoom out a little bit, we can say that there are really damaging things about in real industry that's built around uh, these kinds of inflated claims and these kinds of misunderstandings. And so, you know, I think even in the individual case, if people go in with eyes wide open and say, I'm going to spend $1,400 to get all these blood tests done, and maybe it helps and maybe it doesn't, that, you know, again, there are so many people who are worried about this that if you think about it from the perspective of, you know, an, an economic or marketing perspective, that, you know, it really creates a, a, an economic environment that invites in people to, you know, really make the most inflated claims, to make the, the biggest statements. And, you know, that's not something we should have, I think, in our public discourse and our scientific discourse. So I think that, you know, even by people choosing to spend money on these things, um, you know, that, that in, in a way that, that does kind of pollute the way we talk about these issues. And, you know, I think another dangerous thing we've seen in, in other areas of this sort of pseudomedicine or pseudoscience is that, um, you know, there is the claim about the supplement or the treatment or the thing, but um, you also have to explain why, if it's so great, everyone isn't already using it. Right? So that, that's kind of the natural question, right? Is that if you've discovered the treatment for Alzheimer's disease, then why isn't this on like the front page of every newspaper? Why isn't this on the NIH's website? Why is it that when you go to the Memory Aging Center, you don't get this already? So you kind of, like, along with the sales pitch, you have to invent usually some kind of conspiracy theory about why it's a big secret. Right? Um, you know, I mean, one thing I say to some of my patients is that, you know, so there are a number of clinics that have people's last names on them. And, you know, most of the way science works is a team sport. So most of the effective treatments that we have for diseases, like, are not named for any particular person because they're not a big secret that one person owns. And to, um, to persuade people to spend their money, it's not just enough to make the claim about brain health or curing Alzheimer's disease, you, you usually also have to invent some kind of explanation for why it is that, you know, mainstream medicine or whatever is, has not adopted this. And so it encourages a certain kind of sometimes kind of poisonous skepticism about doctors or about science that, um, you know, and, and, and this is something I, I find personally somewhat hurtful. So, mm. you know, I, I think there are ways that even when people, let's say, eyes open, say, hey, I don't even think this is going to work, but it's a shot, right? This is the kind of thing you hear people say, and, you know, maybe it helps, but it's not going to hurt, and I'm willing to spend the money, that even when it's that individual person's money, I think that there are these other broader effects that we, sh we should be mindful of and, and skeptical about. 
Uh, what what a, a, a set of amazing points. <laughs> Very enlightening. Um, and Dr. Kramer, maybe you can introduce yeah, yourself. I'm and... Joel Kramer. I'm a neuropsychologist at the Memory and Aging Center. And my thinking about all this is, you know, I, the, probably the best way to treat these neurodegenerative diseases is to prevent them from happening in the first place. Hence, our very large program to study typical aging. Some people use the term healthy aging or normal aging. I don't buy it for a second. Typical aging. But if you take hundreds of people like we do and we follow them longitudinally and you measure their brains with imaging and you know, lots of different kinds of, of brain imaging and you measure their cognition and you look at their genetics and you uh, look at uh, you know, proteomics and you look at their cognition uh, and you look at their lifestyle and exposure to various health stressors. Um, you can then begin to build models for the biology of why our brains age. And I think that this is going to be, uh, you know, like in, you know, Dr. Casaletto was really, you know, building on this to really help, uh, you know, guide us and change our behavior and improve our odds as we age. Um, and I also wanted to build for just a second on what Dr. Helmuth was saying. So, and you're a skeptical group, I could tell already from some of the questions, and that's good. So she was encouraging you to be skeptical of pseudomedicine and bad science. I want to encourage you to be skeptical of good science. So where do you get your scientific information? The New York Times, Google News, you see these really cool findings. Go to the original source, and I want you to keep in mind three scientific fallacies that are all over the good journals and the good papers. Um, the first is beware of, and again, I read the papers, beware of multiple comparisons. So, you know, teenagers of the world were worried about, do jelly beans cause pimples? So they did a study, and, and there's no association between jelly beans and acne. But then someone in the lab says, well, wait a minute, maybe it depends on the kind of jelly bean. So they looked at black jelly beans, and no association. And the brown ones, no association. The blue ones, no association. The red ones, no. the green ones were associated with acne. Alert the media, stop the presses. Green jelly beans are linked to acne. All right, I mean you know that. That's because you do enough comparisons. Sooner or later, you're going to find out, you know, something significant. You'll see that in really good papers. Hmm. Beware the fallacy of sample size. If the sample size is really, really small, the odds of, you know, you can get these fluke findings all the time. No one is ever going to replicate them. But of course, you're just reading the study that reports the finding. The opposite is true. Um, if the sample size is humongous, just keep in mind that a really tiny effect that has no clinical significance whatsoever could be statistically significant. So beware these sample size, the findings from sample sizes of a couple of thousand. And then, uh, and it's been mentioned before, do not confuse correlation with causality. And I, you know, I will take data from our lab to illustrate that humbly which is, you know, there, I think Caitlin mentioned it, there's, you know, repeated, clear relationships between inflammation and cognition, inflammation in, in brain structure, inflammation today and what your brain is going to look like three, four years from now. Don't go to Costco and stock up on ibuprofen to lower your rates of inflammation. There's nothing about any of these studies that implies causality. Maybe it's the opposite. Maybe once you start to have 
you know, stuff happening in your brain, you, you mount an inflammatory response. Maybe they're unrelated to each other and instead caused by something else altogether. So um, again, be skeptical of really, really good science as well as the, 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 the crap in the pseudo-medicine. Um, all right. That's and, a scientific and, and term. And thanks for your attention. <laughs> Thank you. Well, we have time for some questions. Yes, here in the front. I'm going to ask you two questions. Are you sure? Of course. So I don't understand what inflammation in the brain means. Uh-huh. And um, does it, you know, when I think of an inflammation, I think of Okay, so maybe both of you can take each. Sure. So um, can please repeat the question for the video yes. recording. So yeah, I'll touch base on what is inflammation in the brain. Uh, so inflammation is sort of a, a very broad term. It's actually not super well. Uh, operationalized. Uh, but you're right. In the periphery, it's when you know you get a splinter and there's this sort of um, swollen and red and tenderness. And that's because your body is mounting an immune response. It's saying there's a foreign pathogen in your skin. All of the cells uh, that are going to help, the immune cells that are going to help uh, make sure that that doesn't um, you know, spread to the rest of your body, come and they make uh, edema, they make the swelling occur. And in the brain, we actually have, this is a little bit uh, newer evidence, that we have uh, some immune cells in our brain. Our, uh, they're called microglia. These are our innate immune cells in our brain. And they're really as important as the neurons. And what they do is they sur- survey the brain and they clean up a bunch of the gunk. Um, they actually chew, chew it up and they, they see, oh, there's a foreign um, protein or a foreign pathogen. And they help uh, make sure that the neuron is functioning the way that the neuron needs to function. And so when we're saying inflammation in the brain, uh, what happens is these little microglia and other glial cells, um, we quantify inflammation by the little proteins that they excrete. And these are some of them are called cytokines. These are just signaling proteins that come out of immune cells to say, mount a response, there's something bad happening in the brain or in the body. Uh, and so we measure these, they're indirect markers of what we think is an angry microglia in the brain. And that's what we're calling inflammation in the brain. Um, but, you know, it's, it's very new. And I think we're going to learn a lot in the next decade about the immune system in the brain and how critically tied they seem to be. Um, so more to come. So and I'm just going to touch on your first question, too. So I, in, in my other role, when I'm not writing papers on supplements, um, I'm actually an HIV researcher, and I study how HIV impacts the brain. And so I really think about inflammation as a broader term, as immune activation. So when you think about inflammation it kind of in your arm or your hand, you think about the swelling. But really, the way that I think of inflammation is your immune system becoming activated and cells not functioning the way that they typically do. And it can be through the the production of these cytokines and chemokines, but I really 
really think of it, it's the whole cascade of uh, chemical events that changes and how the nature of those cells change too. And so it's really a whole shift. So um, I tend to use the phrase immune activation because it just really means that something's activated, things aren't working the way that they used to. Um, and it's a very kind of complicated process in the brain we're learning more about. Um, to get to your question about supplements, I think of a supplement as um, anything that you ingest that isn't food that you're doing for some sort of health purpose that's also not a prescription drug. So I would think of bee pollen as a supplement. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a tablet. It can be a powder. Um, there, are, If you go to kind of a natural food section of a grocery store or to a health food store, there's all kinds of supplements. Um, some of them are things that we know can help people. So um, people can have uh, deficiencies in things like vitamin B12, and they can take a supplement for B12 to increase that. And so there are indicated reasons medically to take supplements, even for brain health. Um, and so what I'm really talking about is just kind of the whole field of supplements, and specifically those ones that are targeted to brain health in ways that don't really have the data behind them that necessarily substantiate their efficacy. Um, maybe let's move to the next row. Yes, ma'am, right there in the middle. You can keep what the mic. The Who yes. wants to take the question on the placebo effect? Yes, so that's why you need to have controlled studies. Um, where individuals are getting uh, some sort of placebo. And I think that um, that is one of the um, concerns that I have about the papers that Dr. Bredesen wrote about his protocol, is that there is no even control group that didn't get the, um, the intervention, much less the placebo group. And it's kind of hard to do placebos for things like exercise, um, because you kind of know when you're exercising or when you're not exercising. Uh, so sometimes the best you can do is a control group that doesn't get the exercise. But we know that placebo is very um, powerful. There's also studies that show that the more complex the intervention is, the more beneficial the placebo effect is. So if you actually look at the papers that are out there, the most uh, beneficial placebo effect is placebo surgery. Right? If you're told that you got a placebo surgery, you think that that is the most effective thing. So you can imagine a very extensive, involved protocol with lots of different parts that cost you thousands of dollars. You're so much invested in that. You're probably likely to have a greater placebo effect than you would for other things. Mm -hmm. We'll take a question maybe in the middle area. Yes, sir. Yeah. Um, so uh, you had mentioned brain games. And uh, as long as we're talking about the, uh, you know, this whole uh, uh, supplement kind of thing, you know, wasn't uh, wasn't a major brain game organization taking taking court to the, their false claims? Yes. So Lumosity recently. Uh, yes, was fined, I think it was about $500 million or $300 million for uh, basically overstating what their brain games do. And that's one of the publicly available you pay for the program. Um, so I think 
Lumosity, uh, again, it, it toes the line between what the claim is and what you're trying to get out of it. Um, so right now, with the state of the science, again, if you train a cognitive skill, if you train how quickly you can you know, touch two buttons, you're going to get better at touching two buttons. There's no question. And that's what the data show. Uh, and what our challenge is as a field is now to figure out you know, how do we leverage the plasticity of the brain. We know we can learn new skills. How do we leverage that into something that's actually going to be helpful to prevent um, cognitive decline and prevent dementia? And those were the claims that Lumosity was trying to make that weren't supported. Um, and so I think uh, in terms of doing the games, as I mentioned earlier, I think um, that the games are, are fine. I, I we haven't heard any side effects other than fatigue. Uh, so I think that there, in terms of safety, we're good. Uh, but I think if you enjoy being around people, you don't want to be in front of a computer, you don't have money to spend on a cognitive brain training program, that there are plenty of cognitively engaging things to be doing exactly what you're doing right now, uh, you know, learning new things. Uh, so, so I think that's where the state of science is, but, but you're absolutely right. It kind of falls right in the middle of the pseudoscience world. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.